0: life is a blank canvas and you paint your own story i'm lee rogers and welcome to the blank canvas i'm going to be chatting with the trailblazers artists thought leaders athletes the entrepreneurs and creators incredible individuals who inspire us to live large this week my guest is one of the all-time great filmmakers Fred Skepsy steered Meryl Streep to an Oscar nomination for A Cry in the Dark, also called Evil Angels in some territories. So too for Stockard Shanning and Six Degrees of Separation. In fact, the world's finest actors have been clamouring to work with Fred for over 45 years. Helen Mirren, Donald Sutherland, Kirk and Michael Douglas, Will Smith, Meg Ryan, Michael Caine, Geoffrey Rush, Sir John Gilgood, Ian McKellen, Ray Winston, John Cleese, Helen Hunt, Jamie Lee Curtis, Kevin Kline, Tim Robbins, and the list goes on and on. Fred began his production career in the advertising world in Melbourne, directing both commercials and documentaries. His first feature-length movie was the semi-autobiographical The Devil's Playground, which won six AFI awards, including Best Film. The chanter Jimmy Blacksmith was next in 1978. This won a few more AFI awards and was nominated for the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival. Fred then began working internationally. Some of the highlights, Plenty, working again with Meryl Streep. Roxanne, one of the best rom-coms ever made starring Steve Martin and Daryl Hannah. The Russia House with Sean Connery and Michelle Pfeiffer. Last Orders, Eye of the Storm and one of my personal faves, words and pictures starring juliette binoche and clive owen in television the hbo series empire falls starring paul newman ed harris philip seymour hoffman and robin wright won a golden globe for best miniseries or motion picture made for television fred's worked across virtually every genre and is a master at adapting books to screen Appropriately, he was awarded the Order of Australia for his service to the Australian film industry as a director, producer, and screenwriter. Fred's a real character and a great conversationalist and delivers a veritable masterclass in filmmaking in this podcast. So much so, I'm delivering this chat over two episodes. Please welcome to the blank canvas, Fred Skepsy. Good afternoon, Fred. Good afternoon to you. Nice to see you here on this uh, Melbourne afternoon.
1: Actually, looking out the window, it's a very typical Melbourne afternoon, Lee. It's like clouds everywhere, sun out for five minutes. It'll be raining like hell in a minute.
0: Good day to be inside and talk about movies. I'll go along with that. Great. I think I'd seen nearly all of your films over the years, but. Over the last sort of six months since we started talking about doing this, I've caught up on quite a few of them. I think I've nearly watched most of them again. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) The Festival of Fred.
1: (laughs) Um, You might have discovered the second and
0: third layers in them. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Well, I think you're one of our finest filmmakers and one of the absolute greats of cinema. Without pissing in your pocket at the start of this podcast, but uh, it is a real honour to be here because I've admired your work for so long.
1: Thank you. And by
0: the way, encouragement is good. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Great. And having started in advertising, making TV commercials like I have, I've always kind of looked to you and thought, wow, okay, we have something in common, even though you've had this phenomenal career and I've had this other varied kind of career, but... um, managed to make a career out of creating all kinds of things, short, long and everything in between.
1: Which is good because, you know, the short stuff is also uh, a great way to learn stuff and, you know, keeps you alive and dancing and,
0: you know. Absolutely
1: does. Vim Vendors, for instance, was, uh, you know, whenever he couldn't get a feature off the ground, he used to hunt around for uh, other things to do and, you know, we'd do documentaries and... Everything to keep, you know, his film juices alive.
0: Yeah, it's a great medium, isn't it, in that it makes your storytelling really efficient. You know what beats you need to hit. It delivers you the craft of knowing exactly what you need and knowing when you've got it because time is of the essence, isn't it? Right, no, that's true, that's true. And, you know, commercials, on the other hand, you learn how to, I don't know whether
1: this term is well known anymore, doing a pricey you know, so that you condense everything and you get it down to its essence and one or two, three points maybe uh, in an entertaining way. And that holds you in good stead as well when you're doing long form because, you know, you you know how to keep it sharp.
0: Absolutely. And you know you need to kind of cover yourself if you need to condense the scene, to tighten it up and speed it up, which you're always needing to do in advertising. Yeah, exactly. You you develop that skill. Um, Particularly
1: at the end of the day (laughs) when, you know, the sun's sinking and you go, I've got three more shots. Uh, I'm not going to get three shots. How am I going to condense this into one that just hits it right on the nose and covers everything?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, lots of people talk about, It's the mistakes where you learn. You learn more from your errors and your mistakes than you do from the things you got right. Certainly the big error I think of looking back that I made that was the making of me, you know, as a good director, was on a commercial where I'd heard from someone, a great director, that, okay, so if you don't shoot too much coverage and you do it the way you want to do it, then, you know, when it gets to post, they won't be able to mess up your vision and it'll have to be cut in this sort of way. And I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. And I've gone and done that. I've kind of shot it and it it can only really be cut one way. And then, of course, we've got to post and the client's like, well, I don't like it on this shot over here. I want to be on this shot on that character at that moment. And I've had to go, well, yeah, no, I haven't got that because, you know, it works better from this and that. It's like, what do you mean you haven't got that fucking angle? <laughs> I've, <laughs> I've just spent a couple of hundred thousand dollars on this campaign. We ended up having to reshoot wow. to do that. It was incredibly embarrassing and uh, at that point I learned that big lesson of like, okay, coverage is your friend, whether <laughs> you're making a commercial, whether you're making a film, it's good to have options. Yes,
1: there's another trick you can use, just do little cutaways, but do them at the same speed if there's movement, and that's difficult because obviously if you're in close on something you've got to move at a different pace to the wide shot so it matches, yeah. but if you do cutaways that are apt and telling, yeah. no one will ever notice it, so you will have in fact got what you want,
0: yeah. <laughs> the way you want it. Good advice. Good advice. I want to talk more about commercials later, but having just watched so many of your films, something I came to look forward to in each film was your opening shot and opening setup. Like in so many of your films, you you start with this big wide shot and you either creep in towards often the lead character. But it starts super wide and I'm like, maybe it's panning across this vista and then it's slowly zooming or creeping in or on a few occasions you've sort of had the big wide shot and then you've just cut in. But um, it's often at a leisurely pace, often with the opening titles moving through. Yeah, I just really enjoyed it. As I'd go to the next movie, I'd like, oh, I'm looking forward to seeing what he's going to do <laughs> on this one. It's funny, I'm not actually conscious of that. Oh, is that uh, right? Well, that's exactly what I was going to ask you. So tell me about, for instance, The Russia House. That's a fantastic opening shot. Can you describe that and maybe even give us an insight into... Do i you don't remember, remember it, it first. It's, you're is in t- it the one
1: where uh, Michelle Pfeiffer... A beautiful uh, monastery in the background. Exactly. And then Michelle Fiverr comes up in the
0: foreground. That's right. That's the one. Yeah.
1: Somebody said to me a long time ago, Bruce Meaton, you know, who used to compose a lot of the films with, we talked about in music you sometimes need an overture, like at a musical theatre or theatre. And it's good to have a kind of visual overture to pull people in off the street, to set them in a different world and then to lead them into your story. And I guess it comes from that probably more than thinking, you know, of doing a wide shot, just thinking of something that will take you into that world. And sometimes, you know, you've always got to have a title of some kind up the front, uh, even though most of them are now moved down to the back. But it allows for that as well so that, you, you know, you use both the title, music, the scene, and, you know, just draw people in into your world.
0: Well, that's exactly what it did. It was it was like this aperture was closing and it was taking me into that world and then into that character. Oh. And, it yeah, it was beautiful. Really, really enjoyed it.
1: One of the uh, best ones is actually Iceman.
0: Tell me I watched Iceman about three months ago. That's one I'd never seen. And oh, yeah. that blew my mind. Yeah. Intense. <laughs> it's it
1: extraordinary.
0: Remind me of the opening shot of that.
1: You're in an ice cave. That's right. And you sort of got this incredible pattern and you come down and you see a whole lot of people in the ice cave basically getting the block of ice out with the iceman in it, you know.
0: Yeah, that's right.
1: What's the famous New York critic? That blew her mind too. She said it was one of the best opening shots he'd ever seen.
0: Yeah, it know. was. Another one Talking New York was uh, opening of six degrees of separation. You remember that one? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm oh, I say sure. yes, I do.
1: Yeah. We start in the park and we we pull back in. We sort of set the location and then we pull back in into the apartment and.
0: That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ah, I could talk about those all day, but I'm not going to bore people with them all day because if they haven't seen the film, it, sure. it may, may not be as riveting. While we're on six degrees of separation, let's talk a little about that. I don't know if you've had this experience but there's a few films I've seen over the years where I've walked out of the cinema and gone, oh, God, that's a masterpiece. Um, Why bother even, you know, continuing directing? I'll I'll never achieve those giddy heights and I'm just going to, you know hang up my directing shoes and, and, and give They're up. supposed
1: to charge you. Yeah.
0: Well, it, it kind of did. You're watching it and you're absolutely exhilarating. You're just like, oh, this is why I do it. This is great storytelling. This is great filmmaking. And then you kind of come out, back outside, and you're like, oh, my God. But um, so that was one of them for me. That was an extraordinary film.
1: It starts with the writing. You know, if the writing is great and you've got a good affinity with the writer, then it's very easy to play games with it, to pick up on it. And the writer, I know it doesn't look like it, but, well, I hope it doesn't look like it. It's a very dialogue-driven film. Most directors, when they do that, they do, you know, an establishing shot, medium shot, and then they bong, bong, bong between people's close-ups and drop back for a minute, bong, bong, bong. Boring, you know. Do dialogue as action. Think about it as action. Now, in that film, and John Guare, the, uh, the writer, said, look, the dialogue is the wallpaper, you know, because if you really, really examine what Will Smith is doing, it's, yeah, not as interesting as it sounds, it's all bluff, right? Yep. So that's the wallpaper. It's the effect he's having on the people and vice versa. That's what it's all about. So with that in mind which is why we use what I now call panther cam (laughs) in that you are like Will Smith's character, you're weaving a web. The whole time you're kind of creeping in and around people, seeing the effect of what he's saying has on them and vice versa, how he starts to feel, you know, all of that sort of stuff. So, you know, with good writing and good intent, you can free up to do other kinds of terrific things with it. I don't know whether you ever saw the stage play or or were aware of the stage play. I was aware of it, never saw it. You know, it was done in the round. Members of the cast sat in the audience, got up, stood on the stage. The Will Smith character appeared in a couple of boxes up the top of the stage whenever he wasn't with them and he had other things in mind. So I had some people forbidding me from doing it, like studios. Other people betting me it wasn't possible to do as a film. And so I went to see the play without any intention of doing a film of it. And I was particularly struck by the art side of it and creativity, etc. you know. And then I liked it so much I took two of my older children and I got a whole different impression. When some of my other children came over from Australia, the younger lot, I took them too and I got a completely other impression of it. Uh, And this happened to me four times and I thought, I think I really like this material. (laughs) 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 So stop just enjoying yourself, could we do it as a film? And you think, you've got to keep that surface fun that's in there, you know, the engagement of the other people who keep popping in and out. And I said, what's missing is you're not seeing it in the context of where it is, of that world. You know, at art museums, at lunches, at dinners, at, you know, that would add a massive other dimension to it. And I sat down with John Guare, who had a lot of producers coming to him and said, we're going to unravel this little play of yours and we're going to put it in order and we'll make a film. <laughs> and he would say, no, you're not. <laughs> and I went to him and I said, look, I think I've got the answer, you know. So where they talk to the audience or whether the people come out of the audience, let's not do that. Let's go to the situations that they would be in, which you're suggesting but you're not doing. So we can get the benefit of seeing people's world, how they're struggling to stay in it, and all of the other people's world that surrounds them. You know, they're trying to, in a big way, keep up with the Joneses. And he just went, oh, yeah, ran out of the room
0: went away and stuck it out into all those other places so we could tell everything. You know? Wow. Well, that you've just answered my question at the end there because that that was the piece of genius that made it work as a film. I never saw the stage play, but that's right. what I was going to ask you. It's those scenes where there's all those other socialites and those people sitting and standing around listening to them in that scene, they're the things that are extraordinary because as you're listening to that, you're watching the face of all of these people and the impact that the story is having on them and that's fascinating. It's like you totally take us into that world. And I was going to ask you, you know, often those people are, You've got the budget and you cast the leads and you've got a couple of, you know, featured people, supporting people, but then you've got the extras. Yeah. But those people, they were right in shot and you're on those shots for a long time. So their performance was really important and I'm sure you must have conversations going, we need good people, we need to pay these people, they need to be great actors and they're like, but they don't say anything and it's like they're not going to want to do the job. They do
1: say everything. They do say everything
0: with their face. So that's what made it work. Just tell me a little about... Some of
1: those people yeah. are actually, instead of casting actors for all of it, we actually cast in that world. We actually had socialites, quite famous ones, the guys that started uh, American Express. Ted, uh, I forget now, but he was like one of the geniuses of coming of age of digital. Wow proper socialites. We had Chuck Close, the artist, and a coterie of his friends. We had uh, other artists in other scenes, a famous uh, Japanese jewellery maker. So we just let them be themselves. You know, so... It was real in every way, if you know what I mean.
0: Wow. Those scenes, like I started looking forward to each one of those as they came through. It was mm-hmm. like watching a painting yeah. in a way. You know, you see these grand paintings and you're able to like study them and you look at the expression on the other faces there and it had that effect. Yeah, and good. I mean, it was courageous because if I was directing that film, I would have thought about that and thought, okay, shit, is this going to work? <laughs> <laughs> and um, if it didn't work... I mean, it was such a high-profile project. I mean, it would have been a disaster. Yeah. But if you didn't get it quite right, it would have been one of those, oh, my God, this is unbearable to watch. But it worked. Were you sure it was going to work or did you see it you make it work. You make it work. Yeah,
1: you make it work. And, you know, I had a pretty fair idea uh, because, you know, I did a lot of industrial documentaries as well as commercials. uh, Like I did one on the newspaper for The Age. Right. And I did one on Canberra before there was a Canberra. And the town planners, the designers of the whole thing, if you get them doing what they do, yeah, right. Right, they revel in it. Right. They're good at it. They're not acting anymore. They're actually doing what they do. So I had that experience in another world and I knew how to arrive at that situation in doing something like Six Degrees of Separation.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Makes sense. I mean, you know, you've worked with a lot of big-name actors, actresses cast over the years, but have you cast non-actors much along the way aside from in those sort of situations?
1: Uh, Jimmy Blacksmith.
0: Oh, yeah. And really Devil's
1: Playground a lot. Not the brothers, but the kids, obviously. Yeah. Some of who have gone on to, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> quite some acclaim. Yeah. Yeah, some in those like Iceman, you know, I used genuine uh, Inuit. People here and there, and uh, yeah, they don't make too much of a habit of it unless it's going to have a benefit like that. Yeah, 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 gotcha. No, that's cool. But in a different way, you know, like the firemen in Roxanne with Steve Martin, none of the firemen were actually actors, they were all stand up comedians. And I picked each one because each one had a physical peculiarity of some kind. It might have been a chin, it might have been a stomach, a certain facial thing, so that it wasn't just Steve Martin with the big nose. There were all these characters who (laughs) had these different things, and they were all stand-up comedians as well. So I thought, you know, this would be terrific. Well, that was a little harder than you think, because stand-up comedians are used to doing a routine and you're supposed to stand still and they're doing the routine and they're doing it around you. And if you move, you know, mentally
0: or physically,
1: it screws them up. (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah, right. It took me
1: a little while to pick
0: up on that. Wow. I want to talk about Roxanne later because that, for me, is one of the greatest romantic comedies of all time. Good
1: original script way back.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, good inspiration, yeah. good, source material, good from, source material from the start, but a really fresh take on it and the way you did it was incredible. It actually holds up. I watched that maybe about four months ago oh, yeah. last year. Watched it again thinking this won't hold up and it actually does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really, really strong. Anyway, I got one more question on um, six degrees of separation sure. that I wanted to ask. And that was because you were, you know, in a way you were – gently or not so gently ridiculing the upper class in New York and the way you'd set it up, were you worried that it would be received poorly by New Yorkers in that world and it would sort of harm you?
1: No, which definitely proved to not be a problem. Yeah. You know, as is the case When you do something like that, people just want to go and see themselves, (laughs) you know, and they might be aware of, you know, the digs you're having. On the other hand, they go, that's us up there, you know. John Guare, he's a, you know, he's a playwright and he's not a socialite, but he's from that world. He's hung hung around in that world kind of all his life. Uh, So he knew it very well. Right. There's a uh, play called A Room of One's Own. And in that play, which is about Virginia Woolf, she touted the great thing of when a writer and a subject come together in a wonderful natural way that they're not straining to make points or to criticise or to show off or manufacture things. They're just writing the story about those people or those things, whatever it is, and the rest of it emerges through it, right? It's like the perfect combination of rather than I have to say this or I want to get at that, you don't. You just get at the story of those people's lives and through you, by osmosis, all that other stuff comes out. Yeah. One of the things that I thought about Six Degrees was having watched it and seen it have different effects four or five times that I watched it, I thought there's a chemistry here that... It's very hard to know what it is. So how do I keep that, particularly in the world of Hollywood where everything has to be explained? Why would they do that? Why would he go down that street at that time of night? You know, screw that. There's this unknown quantity and the thing is to trust it, set it up, you know, and do the panther cam and get people to think differently about what they're watching and seeing and don't try to analyze it or explain it, just let it be and let it happen. So the interesting thing when we went round doing um, interviews afterwards, you know, those horrible things you've got to do, publicity, (laughs) and they would ask John a question, you know, know, what was this about or why did you feel that and everything like that? And it was wonderful because he had a different answer every time. (laughs) He couldn't explain it. (laughs) And I could see him struggling to explain it. Wow. But he shouldn't have to, that's the point. You go, you get the experience and it hits you personally in a certain way and you might go another time, see other things in it and it'll hit you slightly differently again, which is one of the things I try to do in all the things I do. I have like a frontline force of the film and then I have two layers if I can and maybe even a little more ticking along underneath, call it subtext or whatever you want to, right? But it's more than that. There's other whole things going on, which if you watch again, you pick up on us. You're not even necessarily aware that you didn't pick up on that last time. That's what
0: I like to do. That's what a great film is, isn't it? It's that certain alchemy and a depth to it that depending on what mood you're in that day or who you're watching it with, exactly. suddenly you're looking at it from a different viewpoint and it's inviting the audience to participate. Yeah. It's not just spelling every tiny little thing out. It's like a true communication, isn't it? Yeah. It gives you something, it invites you to think about it yeah. It's like framing through a doorway, isn't it? Like you could see something full frame and see every part of it but if you shoot through a doorway and you see just part of the person in there and you don't quite see what they're doing and you're like, what are they doing? And you want to lean around the corner and suddenly you're in there. Yeah, yeah. That, that's what it's all about. And sound. To me, sound is almost
1: 50% of a movie because like take your doorway analogy... If there are sounds either going on down the corridor from where that person's looking or from outside the window over here, both those sounds will add emotion to that scene and have a want to know. What's that? This one might tell you where you are. The other one might tell you, whoa, there's something really weird going on here. That's and then music. And yeah. music just should not just drive a film. Music should tell you something that can't be expressed any other way. So it again adds another layer to it. Don't tell me I'm falling in love. Don't tell me I'm getting irritable. No, no, no. Tell me something I can't feel and see already and give me another thoughtful dimension to it, you
0: know. Beautiful. That's a great description of it. I can't remember where I heard it, but it's always rung true is that nothing sets the tone like music and sound. It's like it can take you so many other places. Yeah, yeah. It's very important. And last sort of thought on Six Degrees Separation. I mean, mate, we need part two and three for you. Um, (laughs) There's so many things I'd love to talk about. But um, just with that incredible cast, Will Smith, Stockard Channing, Donald Sutherland.
1: Ian McKellen.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. Stockard Channing got the Academy Award nomination, didn't Mm. she, for that role? Yeah. That must have been really satisfying and it was a phenomenal performance. Just give us a little insight into working with that kind of key cast and it also must have been thrilling with Will Smith knowing that this was, I think he'd done some other stuff, but the introduction of a great talent and he's gone on to, you know, many great things.
1: Well, he did Fresh Prince of Bel-Air you know, pretty wild television program, yeah. and um, he had
0: also done one movie. Oh, I'm not aware of that one.
1: It had Ted Danson and Whoopi Goldberg. Ted Danson, I think, was the semen donor to Whoopi Goldberg, which he was the product of. <laughs> it wasn't, wasn't a very good film, unfortunately. Uh, it was Arnon Milchan. They thought that it was going to be a huge hit, And because of it, he said, if you get Will Smith for this, because I've looked at a lot of other people, if you get Will Smith for this, you know, we'll do it. There's a longer story to his involvement. So Will Smith came along and auditioned, you know, and he came along and he auditioned like the part, right? He was acting the audition Mm -hmm. and he was very good, but raw talent, wrong speech patterns and things like that, so he agreed that he would get acting lessons leading up to it when we had a particular woman do that, which I think went across about eight weeks, and vocal lessons because he had to change slightly the structure of how he spoke. Yeah. So he wasn't so gutturally Philadelphian. He had a more posh accent, which which is what the kid in the film does. Yep. Yeah. And he had to do that all that time. He had to go and see a production of the play in LA and a production of the play in London because it changed because, you know, Stockard had been doing it for so long. It was an opera by the time it was, you know. So he could see the differences of how things would be. And then what I did... I used John Guerre to be on the set all the time, so if Will had a bit of a question about something or wanted to see something, I'd say, well, just go and talk to John for a minute. Because I had ideas of many things he could do, but sometimes take the pressure off him and me and he'd go and ask John a question and John would show him something on the tape and say, this is really good, what are do you doing? <laughs> and uh, we did rehearsals. Uh, you know, basically sitting around tables and stuff like that. And Will was very noisy because he's used to gearing a setup in a TV
0: series, right? Yeah, sitcom, kind of. Yeah. And uh,
1: Sarah McCallum used to say, Well, Will, please, being a very noisy boy. You know, <laughs> stuff <laughs> like that. Uh, and I remember him saying at one session, um, Why are you asking such simple questions? he said of McCallum and and, uh, Donald, Uh, and they said, if you don't ask the very basic questions, you don't know the very basic character. You can't have presumptions. You've got to know exactly where you're going. And he went, oh, really? You know, so he got educated again during rehearsals and stuff. You know, with Ian McCallum, who I had used on um, Plenty with Meryl Streep, He learned a lot on that, and he was still a little raw. So, you know, he was always looking for guidance because of something that we talked about on the first film, that it was film-level performance, not stage-level performance. And then at the same time, I had Stockard, who, for Stockard, playing at three and a half years, it had turned into an opera. It would have been enough to bring her down from stage, let alone opera, you know. So um, we had to keep just bringing it down to the more realistic level and as she said this is like putting toothpaste back into the tube
0: (laughs) i can imagine
1: it was extremely difficult for her wow and also she was the guardian of the material even though john was on the set she was the guardian
0: of the material and we're all going you don't need to do that it's okay it's okay That's a tricky thing to do because, you know, actors hate any implication that they're overacting something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how would you communicate that precisely?
1: Uh, There's no technique. Like if you take Will Smith, Donaldson, Ian McKellen and Stockard, right, they're all entirely different. Completely. So the best thing is you set an ambience, You know which uh, Ian Baker is always brilliant at getting his crew to understand that keep the noise down. And there's a certain time when you're bringing it down, bringing it down. There's no noise, so when the actors get there, all the focus is on them. You know, even though there's shit got to go on, it's all on the actors. Create a situation where they can deliver what they do. But then, the rest of it from me is instinct. It's probably. I have a chameleon quality, I believe, because if I sat next to the bad boy in the class, I was a bad boy. If I sat next to the brain, I was a brain. (laughs) It's an exaggeration, but you know what I mean. So you just get a feel for what a person needs, when a person might be nervous or uncomfortable or, you know. uh, We did some things with Donald when he got uptight that involved red noises, which made him laugh and chase you around the set and all the tension was gone, right? Uh, with Stockard, you take a more direct approach. You know, yes, you've experienced that, you did that. What was the meaning of that? Tell me why you did that. OK, now we can do it this way. You, you know, you just calmly come back. Could You could be halfway through a sentence telling her something and she'd be like one of those little attack dogs and on your throat, you know, and you go, <laughs> let me finish, you know. So you, you work out, you know, a way so that you don't embarrass her and you don't make it difficult. With Will Smith, apart from training him to relax him, I was playing him chess. Now, he's a good chess player and I am the worst in the world <laughs> and the last thing I is to be concentrating on a chess game. But we just do this little chess game on the side. Wow. And with Ian McKellen, you speak directly. He's a stage actor who understands, you know, faster, slower. No, no, just go in subtext terms. You know, you just talk about it. Let them give you the idea, and then you can temper that down a little bit. Another way of putting it is you are the focuser of a lot of talents. You know, there's an aim for the movie, a logic, a style, a discipline that's got to run through the movie. There's an end result. And your job is to focus all those talents, and that includes the crew, towards that end. And the hardest thing I learnt very early, if you have a preconception of exactly how you want something, you're not going to get it because you're asking somebody who may not be capable of it. So when they do something, I always say to them first, look, if I don't go, wow, beauty, or run around or, you know, gee you up, don't worry about it. I will always take a minute or two, to assess what I've just seen so I don't misunderstand it. Because there might be four or five ways of achieving exactly the same thing that you were hoping to get, right? But it's just done in a different way than you expect. And you can very easily go, no, 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 you know, wrong, wrong. You've got to somehow suppress all that in yourself and just examine what you're seeing as a viewer, if you like. And then you've got to balance that out. Does that work with everyone else's needs in the scene, et cetera. Boy, that was long-winded, Fred. (laughs)
0: Sorry. (laughs) Mate, that was was actually gold. That was really, really interesting because it was a great insight into how you basically just have to perceive where each individual person is at and what they need, what's the key for them to deliver their best and provide them that fertile space for them to deliver that, yet... You can't just be focused on one. You've got to balance everyone's needs, the DP as well, you know, every department, and try and align them all so that the train's going in the same Same direction. direction. Exactly. And um, so that was a great description of what a director is essentially
1: doing. On um, Empire Falls, Paul Newman, lovely guy. Faster, slower, stop there, do that, be this, done that, right? That was kind of his basics, what he needed, because we would have rehearsed a lot in his case and he might come with some fantastic ideas and you had to go, no, nice idea, really good, put it in another film. But what about we take that element, that's a fantastic idea, let's put that in, in what you were doing before. And so you, you still have proper acting discussions, but basically what he needs... You know, as he knows what he's doing and where he's heading, so he just wants to know, don't frown there, you don't need to, you know, like that sort of stuff. Whereas Ed Harris, who's really desperate to do well and gets wound up, so you got to be careful about the winding up. And we went to a point where when he was off, oh, he was off, you know. And I worked out, as it is with a lot of them, he wasn't, present. He wasn't censored. So therefore, he had no confidence to go forward in the scene. That's making him sound bad. That's totally wrong. Oh, he's one of the greats. Yeah. It's just nerves at the beginning of something. You've got a lot of ideas. Which one do I use? What path do I go down? So what we developed was what we called it. talk me in. He'd look across, Fred, and they'd come over, talk me in. So I would go through where he'd been coming up to that point, where he's got to go after that point and I would just keep talking about things of the character and just keep talking, talking, talking. Suddenly he would hit me, which meant go away and he was ready, he was there. All it was was giving him the chance to come in, be there, be present, trust what he was doing, you know. It's instinct, you can't give people rules for that.
0: No, no. I love that. He's one of my favourite actors. I yeah, really, really yeah. like hearing that about him. And interestingly, that series was a phenomena. I think you won a Golden Globe for best yeah. director, didn't you? For I got a, something an, for it. You got best something. film, I think.
1: Best film? and Paul Newman got. And Ed, uh, he got the nod too. Um, but Ed kept getting disappointed, you know, any of the awards he wasn't getting anywhere. And uh, I said, look, Ed, mate, you're not going to get an award. You're too bloody good. I said, I know what you're hoping for and you deserve it. But the fact is, you become the person. People can't see the acting. They only see this wonderful person in the film. Uh, They forget the talent it takes to do that is better than the showy stuff.
0: Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, everything he's in is incredible. Yeah, yeah. Like, he's one of those guys. Yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. I don't know whether it's your charm, the sparkle in the eye, uh, your skill, but you seem to have worked with the who's who of great actors over the last 50 years. I guess once you've worked with Meryl Streep and Paul Newman and a few of these people and they win an Academy Award and an Emmy or whatever, you know, you get a rep and people want to work with you. You, you, you know, you've seen as, I guess, having the golden touch. But... If you had to distill it down to a single trait or two, what do you think it is that has, you know, put you in that position, do you know?
1: Uh, when you're going to cast somebody, the first thing they do is ring everyone you've worked with. So they're checking out your bona fides. And to segue on that, when I did, uh, what's it called, Eye of the Storm, and same with Plenty. You know, I got really good actors in those films they know in like the first few minutes whether you're any good or not or whether you're going to be more concentrating on the visuals rather than the actors or whether you're doing the opposite or, you know what I mean, they they kind of know. Like one actor said to me, oh, thank God you're not taking me into a corner and talking psychobabble. <laughs> you know, uh, and that might be a particularly film thing, I think, but... Uh, If you're practical, if you're passionate about it and you're practical but you're also inducing them to do what they do, you know, not just parrot what you think it should be. Yeah. uh, They pick up on it very quickly. Even if you're a little uncertain yourself at the very, very beginning, they can see why you're that way, why you're struggling for. Yeah. So if you've got that and then people ring and ask, then that helps a lot. And they do. They all pick up the phone to one another.
0: Yeah, yeah, Yeah. I bet. That totally makes sense. I think it's the ability to listen. As a director, you know, we talk about, oh, for actors, it's important for them to listen and be in the moment. Well, it's just as important for the director to listen. Yeah, no, exactly. You know? Exactly. Like Daryl
1: Hannah, I know, went through, you know, worked on quite a few films before us, and no one had ever taken her seriously as an actress. But she would come in with ideas, and it was a big chance putting her in that part. But there was a wonderful thing about it, you know, that she's so beautiful, you wouldn't expect her to be intelligent, was the idea in the film, so. She was brilliant. Yeah, so she would come in, and she would make a couple of suggestions, and, you know, it sounded like suggestions from someone who lives in the trees, you know. And you go, well, okay, let me stop a minute. That's not necessarily expressed in the way I would have. And you sit down and talk about it and you go, oh, that's a bloody good idea, you know what I mean? Because everyone's so different. The big mistake is to make a judgment and dismiss them, you know. The real thing you're trying to do is find out, how can I get that unusual different thing out of them? And once once that trust starts, I like to think what I become is, a sounding board, a mirror. Oh, apparently I am a bit of a mirror. I just sit there doing all that shit. <laughs> Unwittingly. By the way, I just pulled faces for those who can't see on... <laughs> um, I, you know, yeah. mirror and a sounding board, but as I said, a focuser as well. This is the, the best thing about it. If they know they can trust it, they'll go further. Uh, wisely are protecting themselves from editors and bad directors and even bad writing, so they stay within a realm where they can't be embarrassed. You've got to set a thing where they really trust you and they will actually go past, let's call it good taste, whatever, knowing that you'll... Got their back. Yeah, you've got their back. So, okay, okay, this time we've gone too far, and then they can modulate, you know, based on that. And then one of the things I often do, which most of them, like some of them, don't, we do a thing called when we've got, the material we want. So, right, let's do one for Harry. And I go, what? Who's Harry? You know, don't worry about who Harry is. It's another one. You've done fantastically well. It's really great. Is there anything we haven't explored? Is there any mad thought that's come into your head while you are doing all this and you think, no, no, maybe I shouldn't. I said, this takes for that. Just go for it. You know, and sometimes sheer gold comes out of it and you might even develop on that a bit and sometimes it's just so dreadful you go, ah! That leaving they go nah, yeah, we're not doing moving, that. On. Yeah, moving on, moving <laughs> on.
0: <laughs> that's great. Yeah, love that. Love that approach. I think yeah. that's a great way to go. Um, what's your approach on set? To backtrack on that, as far as rehearsals go, I mean, often you would have big names that are arriving, you know, a couple of days before they're shooting, and you wouldn't have much time for a rehearsal. So, True. I'm gathering if you. Do you get to have a bit of rehearsal you would choose to, but sometimes yeah. you don't?
1: Yeah, uh, rehearsal, Paul Newman, for instance, you know, he wanted to get on his feet and map out on the floor, you know, where we'd be and what you'd do and all of that. And, well, you know, very early on you don't know because you know you might, you might be doing that on a location and that on something else. But you'd do it, you know, if that works. But to me, I like to sit down with everyone and we discuss. We discuss individually. We discuss as a group so that everyone can kind of see what other people might need and how it would affect them and vice versa. If we can, we always do a group reading of the whole thing and that throws up lots of interesting things. And the idea is read cold, don't... This is one of the things that surprised Will Smith, you know. We read flat and cold, didn't put any spin on any line or anything just to see what the words actually do for you. Right. So you do that in the reading and then you pick, let's say, three or four scenes that have different tones to them and might be high points in the movie. So we read it, go over it and talk about it and read it and I like to go just to the point where the hair goes up on the back of your neck or your eyes tear up or you, you know, you just go, "Ah!" and there it is, there it is, stop, no more. I don't want to rehearse past that point personally. If somebody needs it, well, you do it, but don't, because you don't want them to leave the gold in the rehearsal room, as they say, you know, and the other reason is, you've got to keep it flexible, so they're on sure ground now in these important scenes, but when you shoot, the first thing you shoot, everything changes. So, you come to work today and you're all happy, and even though you're doing a, an unhappy scene, shall we say, a little bit of that happiness creeps in there. So it, it has a different colour. So that different colour may negate something that you're going to do a little later on or something that happens before which you haven't done yet. And so if you've set it in stone and it's beat by beat by beat, nobody can make those changes or those adjustments. And sometimes I just find I keep pulling forward big changes in drama that's supposed to happen, you know, let's say halfway through and suddenly you find you're in a scene and you go, oh, come on, let's go for this. Well, that changes everything from there on, you know. So they've got to be free enough to be on sure ground but ready to seek the next thing you know that,
0: that that's gold there that that there is the magic really of why some films that on paper are great and other films aren't because so often you have to like you know especially the big storyboarded films you know they oh, just yeah. you know they've been the pre-production is done within an inch of its life. Yeah. And then you go and watch the film and, you and know, you're kind like of that. watching a big long TV commercial. Yeah. It's it's that that ability to, to make those adjustments along the way that, that makes a great movie.
1: You know, a lot of people start, I don't know how many, but I know a lot of people start with the easiest scene in the first couple of days to gear everybody up. No, don't do that. Start with one of the hardest scenes you've got. Get everybody up and running day one. Get those nerves out there. Just do it. And if you pick something that, let's say, is a third of the way through the movie or even a quarter of the way through the movie, go for it. Two things happen. One is whatever height you hit there, now you know what you're leading up to. And... Even if you do something after it, you know what you're leading away from or might have to counteract, right, Uh, or might have to set up stronger. Either way, you know. And you've got everybody and they've all, yeah, and it's worked. And it's worked as its own entity. But now it affects everything around it. And the other thing is if you do it deep enough into the movie, you kind of, as I said, know where you're starting and going because you've got to start the movie right and you've got to end the movie right but people will just think when you get there even if it was a bit of a mistake it's a variation that's interesting when you get to that scene that you've done first
0: nice i like it how often after say you've done that first day or two are you then rewriting other scenes through the Uh, shoot
1: yeah quite a bit sometimes they're just adjustments sometimes they're eliminations right we don't need that anymore so that's, so. let's say there's a scene before and a scene after the one we don't need anymore. What we might do is basically almost combine them because it'll put the colours in that were in that scene but have a different dimension to them.
0: Makes sense. Are you conscious all the time of how you can potentially reduce dialogue and just communicate what needs to be said visually by, you know, juxtaposing shot to shot Yes. As opposed to, you know, spelling yes it
1: out. Yes and no, yes and no. Because I'm not frightened of good dialogue. Um, like the example I gave in Six Degrees of Separation, it's wallpaper sometimes. It's not the dialogue. It's the be looking at the faces. I I don't like, you know, when editors do cuts, you know, they go from this and they establish that scene or they do that. I'm following you, for instance, Right. So I'm following you and you do something heightened at the end of a particular scene and you're in the next scene. What is the thing I'm interested in? What's happened to you? How do you feel after what you've just done? That's the first thing I want to see. I will structure so that the cut will work. I don't want, you know, somebody walking past camera or, you know, some smoothing cut thing. I want to know what is my person doing? In uh, Last Orders, there's a, one of my favourite scenes in the film is Bob Hoskins and Helen Mirren kind of going over their past lives and from it we go back to seeing the past life and it's, this is something I do but it's, basically that has to look like it's all one shot even though it goes on for a very long time on the bank of the Thames, right? And, you know, I'm getting in closer, I'm separating them visually, I'm closing them in again as as they seem to be getting together, I jump away. And she's talking about the love of her life and when they met when they were young. And there's a beautiful scene where she's young, he's young, Michael
0: Caine's young. Michael Caine, what a you performance know. in that film. Yeah,
1: it's great, isn't it? Yeah. So J.J. Field is peeling beans and flinging them into the girl playing young Helen Mirren. Jeez, I shouldn't forget her name, she's great. Um, And she laughs and he drops one down her bodice as it were and she says, that's enough. She gets up and she's walking inside this little hut and she steps up and he says, you're beautiful, you know, beautiful you are. And normally what you would do is you would cut to the young woman I cut to the old woman, tell having the memory, and that's twice as powerful. Then I go back to see if it was the same then, do you know what I mean? And you don't often get a great opportunity like that to charge something extra. But the point is, what you want to know is what is my person that I'm interested in doing. You know, that guides everything. Uh, when people do things in past tense, they'll show you a bloody poster from the 20s and a perambulator walking past. I don't want to know that. I'll pick that up. I want to know what you were doing then. I want to see you in whatever struggle or joy you're having. I'll see all the rest of that. That will be an enhancement. You know, keep me in the personal story if you're structuring a, a piece to or to revel in a time period or something like that, you know, do it through the person. Give them, yeah. the, give them the chance to be that world, yeah, to yeah. be, you know, if you like, your guide in that world, but it's a big guide as to how they got to be, who they are, all of that, you know. And it's unfair to not do that, you know. And Could these be. days, some actors and actresses have... Um, Coaches, acting coaches, I've come across it once and fortunately it worked not so bad because the acting coach didn't turn up on the set, you know, like a second director or something. But there's a couple of them who are real gurus and you will notice in the performance of the actors who work with them a whole series of beats going on. You go from this to that, to this to that, and they analyse emotions and reactions and everything uh, so that it's almost by rote when you get there and you can just see the conscious changes rather than it coming from inside. I'm not against the coaching and the dissection of things but once you've done that, I guess it's like being a great singer or a great piano player, you've done your practice, now bring it out from your heart, bring it out from the inside, let it come out through your eyes But if you're calculating stuff while you're doing it,
0: that's not good. No, no, you're absolutely right. We talked about rehearsal. Let's go to shooting now. You're about to be on set. What's your approach? Do you have all the crew on set when you first bring actors out and potentially block the scene? Do you do a line reading? What's your approach? That really differs. I never
1: shot list a whole scene i don't do storyboards because i can't draw <laughs> uh, but i know what exactly what i want to see i know exactly where i'd like to cut but again that's my guideline that's what i'd like to do but a uh, boy, if we discover something better you do it you know uh, and one of the things i learned in america is you know actors will kind of know when you're putting them somewhere because it's going to be a lovely shot not necessarily what's right for them or in their mind, you know. So you'll say, "So it'd be great if you stood over there." No, no, my character will stand over here. Right? Okay. Here we go. I visit the actors in the makeup. I try and get there very early. I've worked out overnight how we might shoot it during the day. And I go and we just talk about, you got any problems, how are you, want a cup of coffee, you know, uh, tell a couple of jokes, got any questions. Oh, I love the way your hair is and this and that, you know. So we're at ease. So I'll see you in about 20 minutes or can we break, come on out and we'll just do a block, you know, let you see the set, let's talk about what we're kind of intending and then we can get all that done if we're all in agreement and you can come back and finish up and be thinking about what you've just seen, right? So it kind of works that way. If it's a big scene, then you've got to do a lot of blocking and work out camera moves and all of that. Again, I generally like, come out, do it, go away. Look, the hard thing is this. There are moments that are absolutely important and you'll never get it right because the minute you put a lot of pressure on something, pressure is going to tighten everything up and uh, you know if there's any weaknesses it's going to bust out there's a scene with Meryl Streep in Plenty where she's with John Gielgud and she does a rant about Suez Canal and she swears a lot and I always envisioned it as one shot uh, certainly the start of her boiling up and you you know you just do this big long tracking, and you can see it building up and building up and building up as you get in there uh, and so I would say to Meryl, just we would have talked about it and said, we're going to cover this section this way because this is the effect I'm after. So do you want to warm up? Do you want to do a couple? We can do this first, that, you know, and then we'll come to that. Or are you hot to go? Like if you're hot to go, we'll do it right now. If not, then we'll do this shot and this shot. But if at any point in warm-up call, you reckon you're ready, just tell me, we'll just stop everything. Don't worry about logistics and we'll go bang straight to that so you can do it. And I think that's an important thing to do that you're always working with them when you have the knowledge of what you wanna do or how that might go and see what problems that might give them and then, you know, make sure you're there for the moment.
0: That's a lovely approach and no wonder She loved working with you, and she came back for more. Did she get an Academy Award nomination for Plenty? I think she did, didn't she? she? And then did she get another one for A Cry Uh, in the Dark or Evil Angels? It was actually I don't remember called. Yeah, I can't remember either. But I mean, both of them were (laughs) (laughs) incredible. We went to the Golden
1: Globes. (laughs) This is for A Cry in the Dark, and at that stage, the people we were making it for changed about eight times. We were now with uh, Pathé, which had become MGM or was becoming MGM or something. Um, Peretti, the guy, you know, is now in jail somewhere, was the so-called owner of it and uh, he was at our table and there was Meryl and there was other people who were involved in, you know, expecting her to do really well. And uh, there were five nominees and there was a three-way tie for Best Actress, right, and Meryl wasn't one of them. And Meryl jumped to her feet, applauded really loudly, and cheered, and said out of the side of her mouth, "Thank God it wasn't a four-way tie," <laughs> which I thought was wonderful presence of mind. But it was quite unfair because what won, or the three that won, one of them was pretty worthy the other two.
0: (laughs) Her performance in that was astonishing, wasn't it? Cry in the dark. That is an absolute, for want of a better expression, ball terror of a film. I watched it again recently. And I mean, not only did it kind of break my heart for the Chamberlains and what they went through, it was a very powerful piece of filmmaking. Yeah, she's
1: magnificent. And I know some papers here said, oh, she had a terrible Australian accent and had a bit of New Zealand. But yeah, well, that's right. <laughs> Wendy, you know, spent a lot of time or came from New Zealand, whichever way around it went, but she spoke Australian with a New Zealand accent. Yeah. So a hint of one. You know? Yeah. I Meryl mean, had
0: it like... Dead yeah, right, ab- dead absolutely right. spot on and just their naivety uh, to do with the media and how that might play out, I mean, it was just, it was like watching a slow-mo car crash, oh, wasn't yeah. it? Uh, you I'm, know what we
1: tried to do? I had a bit of trouble with the music. I drove Bruce Meaton mad but I didn't want music in any way to colour your attitude or emotion. I just wanted energy at certain points where you need an energy, a sense of something just driving forward, regardless. And when people's lives depend on it, which at the time we are making it, hers did a little bit, right? So you kind of owe it to let the facts speak for themselves. Don't color them, don't change and put characters together, etc. Somehow find a way to let the truth speak for itself. So what we tried to do, and it was kind of became the artistic flight of doing the film, was that there was always a way to shoot and present or act something that you went, yeah, if I was standing there, I would have felt that. If I was standing over here, I would have seen this. If I was, you know, 100 feet down the road and observed that, That's right. It would have been that. We tried to find that perfect moment where you could believe everybody's perspective on it. And all the actors were instructed at all times not to take like uh, if you were doing the forensics person, right? Don't play the forensics person as a bad person or anything like that. Play them as a person who really believed what they were doing, who were really genuine and sincere about what they were doing, you know. So put their best foot forward for them and let the truth emerge from that, uh, which is what we did, you know. Not an easy trick, but a very rewarding one. You know, you knew on the set the minute you hit it, you just went,
0: "Yeah, yeah, it has to be that. Yeah, it's a big responsibility making that film. Oh,
1: Yeah. It was.
0: That's it for the first in this two-part podcast with Fred Skepsy. For all things Fred and links to his movies, head to his website, fredskepsi.com. Stay tuned for next week for part two. In the meantime, live large. Blank Canvas is produced by Lee Rogers and me, Rin MacDonald, with audio support by Jason Murphy at Gas Inc and music by Rodrigo Bustos. This has been a Milovich production.